Howdy. Uh, the whole, like, howdy thing is my thing. But you don't know copyright to the word howdy. Wait, how do you know the court shot it down? What? I guess, anyways, howdy. And welcome to Picket. I have a fun fact about howdy. Not that many okay, people okay, know okay. that howdy okay, stop, stop, actually comes stop. from the, Cue the, from music. the expression, Cue the music. how do you do? Cue the music. Short He's talking how do you do? He's doing it again. And then, to howdy. Uh, my neighbors are playing beer pong. Okay, you ready to do weather in America? Now it's... I'm, I'm grateful that it's time, and I know you, as a listener, are grateful as well, that it is time for weather in America. It is a fan-favorite segment. It is beloved by millions across the country, and I think you're going to like this one today. Today's town, I am going to change just for you here, since you decided to take my howdy. There you go. We're doing four corners. No, 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 no. Uh, I so thought we would the, do a new one what? here just for you. It's right there in the script. For for cor- right there in the script. Uh, uh okay. Today's town is Klein Feltersville, Pennsylvania. I thought we were doing four corners. It it still no, says no, in the no, script no, four corners. You took my howdy. So, this is what you get. Okay, well, if you're so insistent on us doing Klein-Feltersville, Pennsylvania, then why don't you read the weather for Klein-Feltersville, Pennsylvania, if that's a real place? Okie dokie, then. Okie dokie. <clears throat> okay. So, you should expect this week uh, the hot to be the high. The high. Uh, this isn't my, normally my thing, but... Um, the high 80s and the low 90s, Ooh. and you should expect the lows to be uh, high 60s and low 70s. In the okay, night. that's about so enough of that. I don't think it's good. Wait, no, no, it's partly cloudy and showers on you some are days. Disgracing the so, world. I'm just gonna I'm gonna pretend that didn't happen, and we're gonna get into the episode. Today we'll be discussing the electoral college and its position in modern American politics. This has been a hot-button issue over the last few election cycles, and it feels like a relevant topic to consider. Thus, we'll be asking the question, why? The Electoral College. So, the Electoral College, aka the one thing you think you know but don't know, but do. Why Jake? That is such a layered and confusing statement. Like the Electoral College? Hmm. Things may seem confusing at first, so let's just explain the basics. Yeah, okay, let's go ahead with those. Most people already know this stuff, but it's useful to lay this out. So, go ahead. The Electoral College is a system we use in America to decide our president instead of a popular vote system. Each state gets a number of votes assigned based on the number of congresspeople, which is decided by population. The count of senators always two. The states, they remain in Nebraska, would split their vote assignment, have a winner-take-all system, also known as at-large popular vote system. So whoever achieves the highest vote count in a given state reaps all available points. As you are likely aware, the first to hit 270 points becomes a victor and may claim their prize at the checkout counter, that being the White House. This should be enough for those of you living in the reality where both Hillary Clinton and Al Gore have become president to understand the mess we're coping with here. Now, that's as much as Lorenzo's qualified to say, though I'm sure he could he could keep talking. I'm very sure. No, I can say more. I'm very sure you could keep talking, and I don't oh, want to fall yes. asleep. So, uh, let's turn our conversation to someone much more intelligent, sorry, versed on the subject and relevant to the discussion. 
He's a man of many capabilities, so let's just have him introduce himself. Valued listeners, the brilliant Professor Lessig of Harvard Law School. Yeah, you know, I don't think about myself as a, uh, in those ways. Uh, you know, I feel like I've been uh, fighting for a long time, maybe a dozen years now, to bring about real reform in the corrupted democracy that we have, and we're still far from succeeding. So I'm eager to feel like I'm accomplished. Um, um, hopefully, you know, someday, I'm getting to feel pretty old already, but someday when I'm really old, I can feel that. But, uh, but so far, I don't feel it. I mean, you know, I've done a lot of things, I feel, in, um, in what feels now like a long career. I started teaching around 30, uh, when I was 30, and my work originally was about constitutional theory, and it was about um, uh, um, how to interpret the Constitution. And then I took up work around the internet. And then a dozen years ago, I took up this uh, fight to um, address the corrupted democracy that we've given your generation. So um, with that work, I hope someday I feel accomplished. Lawrence Lessig, in conjunction with his 2016 presidential bid, uh, founded an organization, a nonprofit organization known as Equal Citizens. Um, so this has served as the vessel through which he's conducted a lot of his election-based election-based work with um, faithless electors, uh, the electoral college, all that jazz, and it's it's been a critical component of his ongoing work. Well, you know, when I started this work 12 years ago, I was obsessed with the idea that the core uh, problem, um, we could call it the root, Henry David Thoreau once wrote, for every thousand hacking at the branches of evil, there's one striking at the root. Um, I guess I felt like the root of the problem was money in politics. Um, and I started a group called Root Strikers. And uh, with my friend Aaron Swartz, we started um, a reform organization called Change Congress, um, all focused on the need to address the corrupting influence of money in politics. But what I've come to think over the decade since I first did that work um, is that there's actually a more fundamental problem, a deeper root. And the deeper root is the many dimensions of our democracy, where citizens are rendered unequally. So money in politics is just the most obvious example. You know, we have members of Congress who spend anywhere between 30 and 70% of their time raising money, raising money from a tiny, tiny fraction of the 1%. And obviously that tiny fraction, like 150,000 Americans, have wildly more influence in our political system than the rest of us. So that's inequality. But not just that inequality, um, you know, gerrymandering, our districts drawn for the purpose of giving some types of voters more power than others. That's inequality too. The way we elect the president makes some voters in some states radically more important than other voters in other states. That's inequality too. Or the most grotesque examples are they really blatant out in uh, you know, plain sight efforts by uh, states to suppress the votes of some people um, relative to other people, whether you think that's because of their race or because of their party. From my view, it doesn't matter. The point is, this is a built-in inequality in the way we enable the right to vote. So the point is, if you begin to add together all those inequalities, the root is a representative democracy that does not represent citizens equally. 
And so the idea of equal citizens is to say, we need to fight for that equality. We need to fight for an equal power or equal status as citizens. I'm not talking about equal wealth, which would be good. Some people think, I think more equal wealth would be better. Um, you know, I'm not talking about equal talent. Obviously, you know, uh, um, uh, Taylor Swift is wildly more talented than 99.999% of the world. I'm, I'm not talking about equality on those dimensions. I'm talking about political equality, which since the beginning of our republic has been the ideal of a republic and that we right now so grotesquely uh, violate. Um, and that's what I think is at the core of the problem with our democracy today. Equal Citizens is an impressive organization. And you know, he talked about a lot of uh, fundamental principles that they're arguing in favor of, and they have several campaigns out right now, um, trying to push in several aspects, uh, from several angles, um, for people's votes to be counted equally. And it's astonishing that it's, it's taken so long for our system to get that right. Yeah, I think it's definitely an issue that, I mean, I think we kind of, most politicians just ignore that our whole democracy is kind of made backwards and it's like a Jenga tower just ready to fall, I think, that we definitely need to rework it. And I think Equal Citizens is doing that. Not just him and not just now. He has a long history of doing this stuff in cooperation um, with a variety of fascinating characters. And uh, there are lots of other organizations working to do quite similar work. As he described it, the Henry David Thoreau quote, hacking at the root, it's, a, it's an important thing that he's doing, and he's doing it quite cleverly. And I think that given the right amount of time and given the right amount of support, these things will become a reality and hopefully we can achieve a more equal future for our country. Of course, uh, we're going to go into more detail later on, but we thought it was important to get a broader understanding of his thoughts on the Electoral College specifically prior to doing that. Well, you know, I, when I've first started thinking about the Electoral College, like many people, I'm sure, I thought, look, this is just a crazy system because, you know, you basically have not an election for president, you have an election for electors, and then those electors choose the president. But the electors um, don't get allocated equally, one person, one vote. You know, Wyoming gets three electors, even though the population of Wyoming is less than what would entitle them to a single congressperson. Um, and California gets 55 electors, um, even though, you know, they have almost 40 million people. So that Wyoming's votes on one perspective are about four times as more as effective as California's votes. So that just seemed like a stupid system. And that led me early on in this to be a strong supporter of the simple idea. Let's just abolish the college. And let's um, and let's just have national popular vote. Now, I still think that would be the best solution. But as I've gotten into this more deeply, I've recognized first of all, um, it might be that we achieve national popular vote through something called a compact, which uh, we can talk about, but which is an idea to say that states will allocate their electors to the winner of the national popular vote. But if we're talking about fixing the college in the Constitution, we're talking about amending the Constitution, the first reality is we're never going to get three-fourths of the states to adopt a, a plan to abolish the college. Um, it's just too embedded in our tradition. And small states believe they have an important advantage because of the college, and so they're just never going to join. And there's more small states than, um, than uh, uh, one-fourth of the nation, and so we're just not going to get there. Um, 
But as we've looked at it, um, I, I think there's actually a way we could think about fixing the college that um, the vast majority of states and people in those states should support. And the way to see that is to recognize what the core problem, the really dynamic uh, and fundamental problem to the college is. And it's not that every 20 years or so, maybe more frequently going forward, it happens to elect the person who did not win the popular vote, like George Bush or Donald Trump. And it's not really simply because it's not one person, one vote. The real problem to the college is that states allocate their electors according to a system called winner-take-all. So that means if you get 50% plus one vote in California, you get all of the electors in California. And the loser, the person who got 50% minus one vote, gets no electors. Now, the reason that's a problem is that if you think about running a presidential campaign strategically, what that system means is that you will never spend a dime trying to persuade a voter in any state other than what we could call a swing state, a state that could go either way. Um, so think about California. California is going to vote Democratic. There's no doubt it's going to vote Democratic. Joe Biden is going to win California. Uh, what that means is Joe Biden is not going to spend a dime trying to raise, uh, get votes in California. I mean, he might try to raise money in California. That's a good reason to go to California. But he's not going to, he's not going to try to um, get any votes because he's won California. Why would you waste your time on a state you've already won? And the same thing for Donald Trump. Donald Trump's not going to spend a moment trying to persuade California voters. Why? Because even though he's got millions of votes in California, there are many, many people in, in California who support Donald Trump. He's never going to win California. So there's no reason to waste his money in California to try to persuade voters in California. So what that means is California doesn't matter to either Democrats or Republicans. The same with Kentucky, Utah, Montana, Wyoming, Basically, every state that is not a so-called swing state is a state where the president has no reason, or candidates running for president have no reason to try to persuade voters from that state to support the candidate or not. In 2016, there were 14 swing states. In those 14 swing states, 99% of campaign spending happened. 99%. The only time, the only reason a candidate ever left those swing states was to go to a state like New York or California and raise money. But the rest of their time, they were in just the swing states. And what that means is the president is bending his policies to benefit the swing states, regardless of its effect on the rest of the country. So we've kind of outsourced the choice of who the president should be to these 14 states in 2016, it'll probably be nine states in 2020. This tiny fraction of America gets to decide who is our president because of this decision that states have made to allocate their electors to the winner of the popular vote. Now, that doesn't exist in the Constitution. The Constitution doesn't say states have to do that. It's just a decision states made. And the critical thing to realize is if we could get states not to do that, if we could get all the states to say, look, we'll allocate our electoral votes proportionally. And uh, I would say at a fractional level. So, you know, if you go to Montana and you get 45% of the votes, you'll get 45% of three electoral votes. Um, so that means that uh, every single vote in every single state is worth it 
to a presidential candidate. They don't ignore California or Kentucky or Utah or Montana because those are states where if they get votes, they get votes and their votes will matter. If you made that one change, then the president would care about all of America, not just swing state America. Um, now, you could say, well, still the small states like Wyoming and Montana and Delaware and Vermont, they would have more power per capita. They would have more electoral votes per capita than California or Texas or uh, Illinois or Michigan. And that's true. But here's the really interesting opportunity that we have right now. It turns out that the small states are perfectly divided politically. The bottom 10 states are five solid red and five solid blue. So even if we benefit the small states, they get more power proportionally. It's not perfect one person, one vote. It's not a partisan advantage to one side or the other. So if we could adopt this one change, then this one change would radically change how the president was elected and therefore radically changed who the president cared for. And we could get a president who actually cared for all of America as opposed to the tiny fraction of America that happens to live in swing states. My uh, grandmother, she's a Republican in California and she knows that wow. no one's no one's going to come visit her over there. No campaign stops. So, Yeah, but you know, think about that. I mean, you know, California Republicans are like New York Republicans. They're not as extreme as, um, you know, w Wisconsin Republicans, for example. It would be a good thing for the Republican Party if more California Republicans mattered to the Republican Party. The Republican Party would be more representative of Republicans nationally, as opposed to the Republicans who happen to be in these swing states where we tend to see really extreme partisan uh, fractions develop. He makes a tremendous point, you know, um, in states, especially in California, you're not going to see a whole lot of advertising spent from Republican candidates like President Donald Trump. Um, you're familiar with that, Jake, right? Yeah. Yeah. With uh, some personal, uh, like my grandma, like I said. And I mean, if you just look at those numbers, I mean, you can Google them, see campaign spending in states that, that are considered safe and campaign spending in swing states, it's a tremendous difference. As you go down the line of campaign spending, uh, you're going to see that the vast majority of it is spent in states that aren't solidly red or solidly blue. And part of that, or I, I'd say a huge part of that, has to do with how we allocate electors. It isn't in the Constitution that states assign their electors based on at-large popular vote or winner-take-all. It's just something that people opted into. And so now there's, there's a huge push to reverse, to reverse that setup. And part of the reason we wanted to have Professor Lessig on the show was not only his expertise, but also his involvement in two Supreme Court cases that were decided uh, after the recording of this interview on July 6th. I have uh, one of the, the briefs right here from Shiflo v. Washington. This is an elector case. And the other one is the Colorado Department of State. V. Baca. V. Baca. So these both have to do, yeah, these both have to do with uh, elector freedom. So faithless electors, if you want to call that that. Both uh, have now had their verdicts delivered by the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, in both cases, decided to rule that states have the ability to place restrictions on electors 
So essentially, they can dictate whether or not an elector's vote goes to a certain individual. They can penalize that financially, or they can simply withdraw the elector's vote and replace the elector with someone guaranteed to vote for the candidate to whom their vote should be assigned. Here's him explaining the context and significance of the cases. Yeah, so I got involved in these cases um, four years ago when a bunch of electors in 2016 tried to exercise a discretion that they think the Constitution gave them to vote for somebody other than the person to whom they were pledged. So in 2016, you know, you'll remember, we woke up on, um, on November 9th and recognized that Donald Trump had been the presumptive, had been elected presumptively, even though Donald Trump had lost the popular vote. And many people, you know, were shocked by that, that it happened in 2000, but we kind of thought that was like once, it's like a Haley's comment of America's politics, like once every hundred years, that would happen. But when it happened in 2020 and people started doing the numbers, begin to realize this is going to happen again and again and more frequently going forward, given the shifting demographics. And so many of these electors, you know, began to wonder, should they just follow what the rules would say and select Donald Trump? Um, or should they do something differently? And the electors in Washington state that we represented and in Colorado decided they wanted to exercise their discretion, not to try to get Hillary Clinton elected because they accepted the fact Hillary Clinton, even though she had won the popular vote, was not going to be president. But they thought that in the context of this extremely partisan, divided election, where the winner was the loser, um, maybe they should vote for a different Republican, or maybe they should try to recruit um, 37 Republican electors to join 37 Democratic electors and vote for a different Republican. And the consequence of that would be that nobody would get a majority in the Electoral College. But then the House of Representatives would have to pick who the next president would be. And the House would have three choices. They would have Hillary Clinton, they would have Donald Trump, and they would have this third candidate. Um, who many of them thought should be John Kasich, but whether it's John Kasich or Colin Powell, a third moderate Republican candidate. And it would give the House the chance to say, okay, we're going to affirm what the Electoral College would have or should have said, which is Donald Trump, or we're going to pick a different Republican. But nobody expected they would ever then vote for Hillary Clinton. So that's what they tried to do. They voted contrary to how they were pledged. And after they were voted, they voted contrary to their, how they were pledged, they were punished for their vote. So in Washington state, they were fined for the first time in American history. An elector was fined for voting contrary to how he or she was pledged. And in, in Colorado, it was astonishing. You can watch this on the web, this astonishing uh, ceremony where um, uh, Michael Baca uh, votes contrary to how he is pledged. And his vote is rejected. And the Secretary of State says we need to appoint a new elector who will vote the way he's supposed to vote. You know, the whole idea of voting is like a Chinese Communist Party or a Stalin um, Communist Party uh, moment where you're said you have the right to vote, but you only have the right to vote for one person. You don't have a right to vote for any other person. Um, and so that raised a constitutional question. Does the Constitution give to, quote, electors the power to exercise discretion? Um, or does the Constitution give the power to the states to force the, quote, electors to vote one way or the other? And we took this case in both Colorado and Washington, and we worked it up through the courts in Washington uh, to the Washington Supreme Court, where the Washington Supreme Court says, 
um, the state can bind the electors. And the Tenth Circuit, where the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals said, no, that's not what the Constitution envisions. The Constitution envisions uh, and establishes that electors are free. And so now the question the Supreme Court has to address is whether electors can be constitutionally bound or not. Now, you know, the biggest question people have when they hear that we brought this case and we've been fighting this case is why? Like, why would you ever defend, which is what we are essentially defending, the freedom of electors to vote contrary to how they are pledged? Aren't you afraid, people will say. Now, there's this kind of hair on fire brief filed by the campaign legal center in our case that, you know, electors would be bribed or, um, you know, the whole election could be flipped if a couple electors could be convinced to vote the other way. And, you know, my, our answer was, number one, our objective was to make sure that this question was resolved outside of an actual presidential election, because the last thing we would want is for an election to be decided by the Supreme Court if an elector decided to vote contrary to how they were pledged in the middle of a contest. So this question needed to be addressed and it needed to be addressed and decided here rather than in the middle of a contest. That's point one. Point two is, I actually believe that's what the Constitution requires. That's the fair, honest reading of the Constitution. And what the court should do is give us a clear reading of what the Constitution requires. It's not like we're creating it. It's what the framers created 240 years ago. Okay, but then number three, Yes, if in fact this is what the Constitution requires, we believe that will give many people an even stronger motive for thinking about what we should do with the Electoral College. Should we continue to keep it the way it is? Or should we change it and evolve it into something different? And um, I certainly would support an amendment that would say, you take the electoral vote, you take the vote in a state, you divide the electors as votes, not as people, fractionally between the top two vote getters. And that solution would be a solution that would make sure that there is no crazy bribed elector in the middle of the mix. Um, remembering historically, there's never been a bribed elector, but okay, put that aside. And then secondly, you would have a system that would actually give presidential candidates a reason to care about all of America rather than just this weird country called swing state America. So as I said prior to Mr. Lessig's introduction of the cases, a verdict was rendered by the Supreme Court on July 6th, and um, unfortunately, this was against the will of equal citizens and Mr. Blessig. But as we talked, uh, this verdict does still help further his agenda under the equal citizens uh, mission, correct? Yeah, to, to an extent. Um, from what I've gathered it doesn't necessarily mean that the push toward a reformed electoral college is completely destroyed, completely obliterated, because one fundamental outcome of the Supreme Court case is that it it makes a huge clarification that going into the national popular vote interstate compact, which is an iffy thing we're going to get into in a second, states are going to be able to enforce certain rules upon their electors. They're going to be able to dictate how their electors vote. And that might be something that states are really interested in moving into this compact, but I don't want to talk too much too much about the uh, about this reformatted version of the Electoral College known as the Popular Vote Interstate Compact. So let's just let Professor Lessig explain. We did ask him to do so briefly, so that explains his response at the start of the clip. 
yeah, so obviously I've made it clear I can't say anything briefly. So no, I can't do that. Um, but I can try to describe it. Uh, you know, so the National Popular Vote Compact is a genius hack um, uh, conceived by, you know, this argument about exactly who conceived of it, um, you know, um, the Amars, Vic and uh, um, Akhil Amar, who are professors of law, had written about it in 2000. And then John Koza, who's uh, an extraordinary organizer and guy who actually gave the world or gave America um, state lottery systems, um, uh, launched this project to get this idea enacted into law. And basically what the law says, what the compact is, is a promise that states make to each other, that those who are members of the compact will pledge their electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote, regardless of who happened to win in their state. So what that means is, for example, California is a member of this compact. If the compact achieves 270 electoral votes, meaning states representing 270 electoral votes join the compact, then it kicks into a force. And when it kicks into the force, every state within the compact says, we will pick a slate of electors consistent with the winner of the national popular vote, not with the winner of the vote in our own state. So imagine there's an election 2020, imagine the national popular vote compact is in force. Imagine Donald Trump wins the popular vote nationally. But California is member of the compact and California has therefore promised to select the slate of electors consistent with the winner of the national vote. So that's Donald Trump. So California would be obligated to pick 55 Republican electors and have those 55 Republican electors vote for the winner of the, um, for the president of the United States. It's an elegant hack, I think, hack. I mean that in the, uh, in the affectionate sense of like the way people used to talk about computer hacking um, before it was about, you know, stealing credit cards. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an effective hack because what it does is guarantee that the winner of the popular vote becomes the president, assuming states don't back out and assuming not enough electors flip to the other side. And so that kind of, without amending the constitution, it creates the opportunity for um, the winner of the popular vote to be certainly the uh, person elected president. We don't have 270 electoral votes committed to the compact yet. We're getting close. I think it's just over 200 right now. Um, and, but it won't be in a force in 2020. Um, instead, in 2020, there's a fight going on right now in Cal Colorado, um, where Colorado had joined the compact, and now there's a referendum that's trying to get Colorado to back out of the compact. So there's un some uncertainty about whether the compact will survive in Colorado, and if it survives in Colorado, whether um, we can, it can get enough votes to get 270. But if it does get 270 and it remains stable, that's a pretty elegant fix to the problem, to at least the problem of worrying about um, uh, um, uh, whether the winner of the popular vote becomes president. It solves that problem. It solves the one person, one vote problem because the only thing that matters is the popular vote. And it also solves, um, uh, you know, the problem of uh, um, electors because the, the 270 that you automatically get would be added to other electoral votes that you get from states that are outside the compact, which would mean that there would be enough of a majority that no cabal of electors could ever flip the result. So we wanted to, now that we know a little bit about the national popular vote interstate compact, we wanted to uh, figure out if it's going to be feasible to use in this upcoming 2020 election. Um, and we just want to know 
when does he see this being used? When does it reach 270? Yeah, although it's, you know, very feasible until 2020, I mean, until the 2016 election, the people who were pushing the National Popular Vote Compact um, included many, many Republicans, even though we don't yet have a clear red state who's joined the compact, a big significant red state that's joined the compact. Many Republicans were pushing it. Um, but after 2016, you know, many in the Republican Party believe that the only way they win presidencies is to keep the Electoral College the way the Electoral College is. Now, I actually think that um, Republicans are going to change their view about that in 2020. Because I think in 2020, you're going to see the state of Texas and maybe Georgia at least go purple. You know, not necessarily go blue, but at least go purple. And what that means is if, you know, imagine Texas went purple or blue, no Republican under the existing system would ever be elected president again. If Texas goes Democratic, then they could never get enough electoral votes to win. Um, so I think very soon, the real opposition to electoral college reform is going to come from Democrats who will realize that the changing demographic in Texas, maybe Georgia, is going to turn uh, the electoral college into their greatest gift. And more and more Republicans are going to realize that they have no fighting chance unless we change the system from the current winner-take-all system to something that is more representative. It was just, it was a wonderful opportunity to speak with, to speak with Professor Lessig. Um, we learned a lot, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I, I definitely didn't go into the conversation um, knowing all the things that we did. And, and looking back at the conversation now, you know, uh, this episode's being released on July 15th, and the verdict is rendered on July 6th. It, it, it's, time, it's time to continue to assess the Electoral College and its viability and how we can pursue reformation. Yeah, I don't think it should just stop after this episode. I think everyone should take the time to think about the Electoral College and why we have it. I, I, I completely agree. And I think it's it's sad that it's become a partisan issue because it certainly shouldn't be. And he just said this in the last clip that we played. Uh, pretty soon, it, it could come to be that the Electoral College benefits Democrats, benefits liberals, as we see states like Texas um, become increasingly liberal. Demographics are changing, things are changing, uh, and it's going to be interesting to see how things go. And I mean, the thing is, it's a partisan issue right now, mostly conservatives are keeping it. And when that switch happens, you know... I'm not sure what's going to happen if liberals are going to try to keep it and it's going to be a reverse. Either way, this still shouldn't be an issue of our democracy, no matter who's getting the advantage and what side you're on. So, 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 so true. Yeah. As he put it, the, 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 the president is supposed to be representative of the American, of the American populace. So we should see someone who, you know, has, has the most support and the electoral college just isn't doing that effectively. Yeah. And we there's a lot of the, America should pick the president, not <laughs> America should pick the, the president. There's a lot of the conversation we didn't play. And uh, we talked about a lot of other things. And we I feel that we struck at the core of certainly what Pickett means to me. And I think what our podcast means to you is as well, Jake, is that yeah. as as youth in America, it's difficult to see such a, a divided population that, that can't agree on fundamental issues 
that affect our ability to participate in the democratic process. And to see those divided along party lines means that it's going to be very difficult to try and get real policy passed, try and get things changed when gridlock is so enforced by partisan disagreement and and party lines. So, yeah, how we're going to fix that. And I think that we have an obligation to, to try and sort that out with big issues, with small issues. And the Electoral College illustrates this dynamic perfectly and the, the kind of cooperation that, that needs to be brought about. So, you know, we, ta- we, covered, a lot of ta- we covered a lot of ground. Uh, we went from the Electoral College and eventually our discussion with Professor Lessig uh, moved to the rally that President Trump held in Tulsa, Oklahoma, just a, a few days prior, and coronavirus, which is another stellar example of our government being unable to cooperate, to reach across party lines, to agree on anything, um, even something as fundamental, as basic, and as dire as coronavirus. So, it feels like it feels like a shift from the Electoral College to uh, this clip about coronavirus, but it also ties into a lot of our principles as a podcast um, and as people that we need to cooperate and we need to. The long form media is such an important thing. So, so take a take a moment, listen to this clip, and uh, that'll be it for the episode. I think there's this dynamic where people begin to recognize the meaning of what he said when he said, uh, you know, if you test more people, you see more cases. So I told my people, let's slow down the testing. You know, that that's a self-conscious decision to act in a way that will increase the number of people who die. You know, so if you just, you choose to kill more people, then the question is, what's your justification? And if the justification were, well, we are saving the nation or, you know, Lincoln chose to make this, made decisions that led to people dying, but, you know, it was to save the union. Okay, I get that. But when you make a decision that will lead to people dying so that you get reelected president, I think at a certain point, people are going to sit back and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, I could be a conservative, but that's not what conservative values <laughs> argue for. So I, I agree. That's, that's, this is going to be a big moment for him. Um, um, but, you know, what you guys are doing, this is, I think, ultimately the savior for democracy. Now, this is an example of what I think of as like slow democracy, right? So um, in the book I just published last year called um, They Don't Represent Us, and one of the biggest problems I talk about in that book is how we've been polarized into these bubbles, these tribal bubbles. And media does that. Platforms do it like Facebook and Twitter, and cable does that because that's what's their business model. Their business model is to turn us into creatures of hate. But there's these other forms of media for talking about politics, like podcasting, where you get time to think and to work through uh, the issues and to give people a moment to reflect. Like it's politics at a human speed, um, slow democracy. Um, and, uh, and that, I think, d- builds a different kind of understanding, an understanding which is more reflective and balanced. And so, you know, I'm so grateful for you doing what you're doing because the more who do it and the more we focus people in this space rather than in the Twitter space or, um, or a Facebook especially. I mean, I'm very supportive of what Twitter has been doing, so I don't want to trounce too, much, have, too heavily on them. But, um, 
but but more in this space, then you know, I think that's going to be a real yeah. Some politics can't be explained in rapid fire headlines from like CNN or Fox News or uh, two hundred and fifty words. So yeah, I definitely think yes. podcasts. Yeah, most most politics. Candy. Yeah, yeah. yeah hashtag can't communicate what a an hour long discussion with uh, an academic or a mm -hmm. politician could. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're forced to talk about things that you know you can connect in 10 seconds on. Um, you know, and I, I often feel like this is the biggest problem we face. You can think of it as the attention span problem. So if you have an issue that you know will take, you know, three minutes to understand, but you know the rational person, not the ignorant person, the rational person would only spend 20 seconds trying to understand it. Then what you know is you have an issue which will systematically be misunderstood. And politics is a perfect example of that. You know, it's there's easy answers and then there's the right answer. And the right answer is not always the easy answer. In fact, not often the easy answer. So when politics is at the Twitter length, then you talk about easy things like, you know, um, easy and important and clear things because it makes it easy, you know, it gives you something you can say that's true. So I think Black Lives Matter. I, I, I think that's a great slogan. I think that's a great way to summarize an incredibly important movement. Um, but in part because it's so simple to state and to utter and to understand. Um, um, yeah, but if you're going to talk about, you know, what should the minimum wage be? Or, you know, what should trade policy be? There's no slogan that summarizes the truth of that. It's just not sloganable. You know, it takes 10 minutes to understand. And so that means, you know, we shift politics away from issues which actually are complicated, the sort of issues we need to think about in a subtle way. To issues that are not complicated that leads to us even be, you know being even more polarized it's so thank you for what you're doing because this is really important thanks to larry of course for coming on the show and as always thank you our listeners so much for your continued support and for listening to picket if you'd like to stay up to date on the latest developments here at picket you can find us on instagram and twitter at picket podcast no space picket podcast and if you'd like to contact us with any questions or comments, you can visit our website at picketpodcast.com. And we'll see you next time on the Picket Fence with us.